My name is Caleb Hunt. I'm the pastor at Grifton United Methodist Church, and welcome to the End of Words podcast, the home of our weekly sermons. If you are in the eastern North Carolina area and would like to come visit us, we have weekly worship services at 11 a.m. in our sanctuary on McRae Street, and we would love to have a chance to meet you in person. In the meantime, though, we pray that this message might help you in your own life and in your own context to refocus on the story of Jesus. We have three short scripture readings today. The first comes from Exodus chapter 15. We're reading Exodus 15, 1 through 2, and then verse 17. Here we go. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him my father's God, and I will exalt him. Verse 17, you, O God, will bring in the people and you will plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands will establish. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Our second scripture reading comes from Isaiah chapter 52. We're reading Isaiah, sorry, 51, Isaiah 51 verses 9 through 11. Was it not you, O God, who cut the monster to pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and will come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy. Sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Our third scripture reading comes from uh, Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, Philippians chapter 1, we're reading verses 3 through 6. I thank my God every time I remember you, and all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, and because I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. What a great, what a great Christmas hymn that is, right? It's it's just so triumphant. It's like a declaration of victory. It's awesome. Um, Joy to the world. It's one of those hymns. It's it's one of those hymns that's an almost guaranteed mood changer. It will change your mood when that song comes on. If If it's one of those Sunday mornings where you sort of had to drag yourself into church or your spouse had to guilt you into it and your heart's just not there, that might be where you start. But if that first hymn is joy to the world, then when that first note hits, it's like a trumpet blast. Joy! You can't help but perk up a bit. And by the time the second verse rolls around and we're singing about rocks, hills, and plains, repeating the sounding joy, you're going to be tapping your foot and belting it out like everybody else because the song is infectious. It's a song about joy that brings joy. That's why it makes everybody's top five Christmas songs list. This week, we, uh, in our sanctuary uh, on McRae Street in worship this week, we lit the third Advent candle, which is the joy candle. Along with hope and peace, joy is a fundamental part of the Christmas season and the meaning of the baby in the manger, who was, as the angels put it, great news of great joy that is for all the people. And so as we continue our Advent sermon series on beloved Christmas hymns, we will, or you will hopefully, conclude this podcast sermon listening experience by listening to the song, the triumphant cry, Joy to the World. And until then, we will use the time that we have together to really mull over this concept of joy. What is joy exactly? 
How does the world around us, how does our culture think about joy? And does that match up with what the Bible says about joy? How can we embody a godly and Christian joy in our everyday lives? Those are the questions that are before us today. If you just Google joy on the internet, the first thing that comes up is the Oxford English Dictionary definition, which defines joy as a feeling of pleasure and happiness. A feeling of pleasure and happiness. There are two things that are interesting and important about that definition. The first is that joy is a feeling. Joy is a mood. It's a mental state, according to the Oxford Dictionary, and according, I would argue, to our broader culture in general. You can either feel joyful or not feel joyful. The other interesting thing is that joy is equated with pleasure and happiness. In America and in most of the modern world, joy, pleasure, happiness, those words just tend to get folded in folded into one another, and their borders, if there are any, get fuzzy, and it's hard to see where happiness or pleasure ends and joy begins. Do you all know what dopamine is? What is dopamine? Dopamine is a neurotransmitter, meaning that it's a chemical that interacts with the neurons in your brain in order to communicate messages and to affect your mental state. The most famous uh, neurotransmitter is probably adrenaline, and what does that one do? That's the one that gets you all amped up, right? Because you're in danger or, and you're going to need to fight or flight. Dopamine is also a very important neurotransmitter because it's responsible for feelings of pleasure. Just like the presence of adrenaline tells you that you're in danger and it makes you feel all amped up. If there is dopamine running through your brain, then your brain is telling you, you are happy. Whatever is going on right now, it's great. And if joy is a feeling of pleasure or happiness, then you might say that dopamine is the joy chemical. Its presence in your brain is the physical chemical cause behind a good mood, behind feeling happy. Dopamine, dopamine is pretty clearly awesome, right? It's one of God's top tier creations. Dopamine plays a major part in the bond that a mother feels when she looks upon her child for the first time. It's behind your sense of satisfaction and accomplishment after you've finished a long hike or you've completed a project in the workshed or something. I get a dopamine rush rush whenever I get to eat Chicago deep dish pizza, which is pizza the way that God always intended it to be, the kind of pizza that we'll eat in heaven. Dopamine, dopamine is also a moneymaker. There is a lot of money wrapped up in dopamine. And that makes sense, right? If you can make a product or you can provide a service that triggers a dopamine response in the consumer's brain that makes people feel happy, well, then you're in pretty good shape, aren't you? That's going to be a very lucrative product. And I'm not talking about like an illegal drug or anything. I'm talking about something something as simple as kitchen gadgets. I have a problem. I have a problem where I buy too many kitchen gadgets. I love to cook. And what comes along with that is I love to buy kitchen stuff off Amazon. It gives me a dopamine hit to find a new fancy pot or food processor or a weird kind of ingredient on Amazon. And I hit that one-click purchase button and I know that it's going to be waiting for me in my pastor's office Sunday morning. What's more is that Amazon and the internet in general, they know this about me. The internet has tracked my purchases. They know that I'm a sucker for a shiny new chef's knife. And so now I get advertisements everywhere on Facebook, Google, anywhere that I go online, I get advertisements for kitchen gadgets, creative ways to chop onions or to peel sweet potatoes. And what all of those ads are doing is they are promising me that little dopamine hit, that brief muted burst of happiness that comes whenever I pull the trigger on the avocado slice and dice 3000. Y'all, so much of our culture is built on this promise, this offer. You can feel joy all the time, whenever you want. As long as joy is a feeling of pleasure or happiness, then you can buy it in the form of this little device or this gadget or this pretty bobble. 
This is so much more on display in the Christmas season than any other time, right? We Christians, we are constantly trying to remind the world that the Christmas season is about more than presents under the tree. But that, it's a tough sell because there's so much dopamine on the other side. It feels so good to buy presents, to wrap them, and to open them on Christmas morning. Uh, some businesses, some businesses don't even need your money. They just need your attention. And they will shell out all the dopamine that they can in order to get it. I read an interview this past week by Sean Parker, who was the first company president of Facebook back in the early 2000s. In this interview, which reads sort of like a confessional, he says that the company, Facebook, which makes money by selling ad space on its pages, Facebook in the early days was constantly asking itself this question. How do we consume as much of our users' time and conscious attention as possible? That was the driving question as they designed the site. And the way to do this, Parker continues, was to exploit what he calls a vulnerability in human psychology. Whenever someone likes, comments, or shares something that you post on Facebook, quoting Parker, we give you a little dopamine hit. Parker calls this Facebook's social validation feedback loop. You post something, a picture of your grandkid, and someone shares it or likes it or comments on it, and it feels good, right? Of course it does. That's a tiny little dopamine hit. So you post something else. It gets a lot of likes, a little bit more dopamine, and so on and so on and so on. Websites like Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, these sites, they are all designed by some of the smartest computer and behavioral scientists in the world to feed a constant, steady supply of dopamine into your brain like an IV drip, just enough to keep you from closing the website, just enough to make sure that you compulsively check your Facebook or your Twitter notifications, just enough to keep you on that page where those kitchen gadget ads are running all over the margins. Hours and hours and hours of very, very profitable joy. I see parents these days that are frustrated with their kids because they think they spend too much time on their phone. Their kids can't, they can't put them down. They sneak them into school. They have them under their laps, under like the Thanksgiving table. And the parents get angry at their kids. It can become a real source of tension in the relationship. And I sympathize with these parents. I do, but you really can't get angry at the kids. That, that phone is chock full of apps and programs specifically designed to capture their attention and to hold it as long as possible. Using this validation feedback loop, using that dopamine drip, parents often say something like, it's as if, it's as if, or it's like my kid is addicted to his or her phone. It's not like they're addicted, they are addicted. They are chemically dependent on the constant stream of the joy chemical that comes from the likes on their Instagram posts or the response to their Snapchat pictures. The amount of willpower it would take for these kids to just voluntarily stop using their phones, it's enormous, it's out of reach. You can't blame the kid for looking at their phone when their phone is making them that promise, the promise of our consumer culture. You can feel joy all the time, whenever you want. Just buy this, look at this, or watch this. But that promise is a lie, isn't it? We all know that intuitively, almost, don't we? We know that an internet shopping spree usually ends up with a pile of junk we don't need and increased anxiety about our credit card bill. We know that an entire day scrolling through the internet, you know, you might get the occasional mood boost, but it's a sad and painful way to live, a sad and ultimately futile way of finding meaning and purpose in life. The, the hard data, the research backs all of this up. Pretty much any metric or study that you find will tell you that spending excessive amounts of times on things like Facebook or Instagram, or even just, you know, like internet news sources, in the long run, it makes people more distracted, more anxious, even more depressed. I've got a personal story to illustrate this point. It's sort of a, a funny story that has some really sinister undertones to it. I had to get some work done on my car 
And so I took it to the Firestone in the nearby town in Kinston. And Becca, my wife, was working at the hospital all day that day. So I was just going to have to wait in the lobby while they did the work. No one was coming to pick me up. So they take the car back to the shop and I plop down in the waiting room and I turn on my tablet that I use to read articles and catch up on the news and stuff. I notice that it has 8% battery. Well, darn. Uh, I read some random stuff on it until it dies about 15 minutes later. And then I pull up my phone, planning to just spend the rest of the time tooling around on the internet. My phone has a 6% battery. It dies minutes later and I realize that I'm about to spend who knows how long, hours probably, stranded in a Firestone lobby with no tablet, no phone, not even a book or magazine to read. I, I went through the five stages of grief, y'all. I, denial. My phone is not dead. It cannot be dead. Let me try to turn it on again. Anger. I'm so stupid. Why didn't I charge my phone? Bargaining. Maybe someone in here has a charger. What if I ask the guy at the desk? Would he let me charge my phone? Depression. This is going to be the worst afternoon of my life. I don't think I ever made it all the way through to acceptance. Um, I survived okay for the first 30 minutes or so, just sitting in the, in the chair, staring at the wall, but that was it. I was there for four hours. Nothing to do. I could not believe how terrible this was. I started pacing around the room by the end of the first hour. By the second, I was reading and rereading the little information pamphlets that they set out on the desk about different kinds of tires. I was a mess. And it wasn't until some days and weeks later that I looked back and I realized, you know what that was? I was going through withdrawal, literally. My brain was so used to just, whenever there was any moment of quiet or pause, so used to just pulling out my phone and plugging into that little dopamine drip, Facebook or a newsfeed or something. And with all of my devices dead, I could not get a fix. I couldn't get that joy chemical. I was left totally without joy. Biblical joy, the joy that we are going to sing about or that we sang about at the end of this service and that I hope that you will sing about uh, when you look up Joy to the World at the end of this podcast. Uh, biblical joy barely resemble, does not resemble at all this consumerist, money-making, attention-grabbing feeling of momentary pleasure or happiness. It's a totally different thing. And how do we know that? Well, the easiest way is to look at the circumstances in which people are joyful in the Bible. It only took a couple of hours, a couple of unplugged hours at a Firestone for the world's type of joy, that feeling of pleasure or happiness to turn on me, to desert me, and leave me biting my fingernails and searching under every seat for discarded magazines. But in the Bible, people sing for joy in much more dire circumstances than those. The descendants of Abraham sing for joy, the text tells us, in the middle of the desert, with no idea how they will survive the days and the weeks ahead. The Israelites in exile sing songs of joy, even though their homeland and their temple has been destroyed and they are suffering under the brutal rule of the Babylonians. Paul writes a letter in a Roman prison cell, most likely awaiting execution. He is able to write in that letter, I consider it nothing but joy. So when the angels sing to the shepherds that Jesus is here to bring good news of great joy, they must mean, well, they must mean something just radically different than the kind of joy that we have been talking about so far. What is this other kind of joy that seems to be so much deeper? To find out, we're going to have to take a closer look at those three examples that I listed a second ago. Examples of biblical joy that seem to have so much more power than buying presents on Amazon or disappearing into TikTok or something. Let's start with the Israelites, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, just after they left Egypt. We all know the story of Moses, I hope we do, leading the people out of Egypt, the 10 plagues, and then the parting of the Red Sea, all of that stuff. It's a great story. Well, right after that story ends, Moses' giant tribe of people are on the other side of the Red Sea. Pharaoh's chariots are underwater, and the huge Negev desert is stretching out for miles and miles and miles in every direction. And so they throw a party. 
a huge, sprawling, joyous party in honor of Yahweh, the God of their forefathers, worshiping him and praising his name. Now, you might think that this makes sense. They were just delivered out of slavery after all, right? Why not party? And yes, that's fair. But in the context of the story, it seems at least a bit premature. Moses brought them out of Egypt by telling them, by reminding them that they were heirs to the covenant of Abraham, the promise God made to Abraham that he would inherit the land of Canaan, a land flowing with milk and honey, and that he would become a people so great and numerous they outnumbered the stars in the sky. That sort of stuff is nowhere to be seen at this point. The Israelites are in the middle of the desert, and people do not survive long in the desert. There is no food and there is no water. You have about 48 hours to find some before terrible things start to happen. They have no idea where water or food might come from. They could all easily be dead inside of a week. And yet they sing for joy. How? Well, our first brief scripture reading for today from Exodus 15 records the words of the song that the people sang to God at this giant party in the desert. And the lyrics give us a clue. The first half of this song retells the story of God's mighty acts, the liberation from Egypt. Horse and rider, he is thrown into the sea. Your glorious right hand, O Lord, has shattered the enemy. The end of the song, however, shifts points of view, and it seems to be speaking about a future day. It talks about things that have not happened yet, as if they had already been fulfilled. In chapter 15, verse 17, it says, You, O God, bring the people in and you plant them on the mountain of your own possession, the place, O Lord, that you have made your abode. The Lord will reign forever and ever. The end of the song looks forward to the day when God will act again. And he will establish the people in the land, and God himself will reign over all of creation. By remembering God's mighty acts in the past and looking forward to the fulfillment of God's promises in the future, the people experience overwhelming joy, even in a present moment that seems so dire and hopeless. Centuries later in Israel's history, we get something similar. This is our second scripture reading for the day. This is after the Israelites both gained and lost the kingdom. God built them into a great nation, and then they squandered it in sin and idol worship. So God allowed them to be defeated by Babylon and to go into exile. In the middle of the exile, while he is suffering under the brutal rule of his overlords, the prophet Isaiah writes a song of joy. Weird. The song again recounts the past deeds of God. Isaiah 51 verse 9 through 11. Was it not you, O God, who cut the monster to pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, who made in the depths a way for the redeemed to pass over? God has done great and mighty things, Isaiah says in the beginning of the song. And then in verse 11, Isaiah also moves into the future tense. Those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. Sorrow and sighing will flee away. Isaiah remembers the good work of God in the past and looks forward to God's work in the future. And he is joyful. One more, and this one's a bit different, but it follows a similar pattern. The Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Philippi while he is rotting in a Roman prison cell. As far as Paul knows, he could be executed any day, leaving the young church without a leader. But Paul is not writing a sad and anxious letter. No, he is writing a joyful letter. He writes in Philippians chapter 1, verse 3, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all of my prayers for you, I always pray with joy. Why? Why does Paul pray with joy? He continues, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, and because I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul remembers the good things that God has already brought about in the Philippian church, and he celebrates them. 
And then Paul expresses confidence that in the future, God will carry on this work to completion until the day of Christ. It's the same pattern as before, from the past to the future. In the Bible, joy is not a feeling. It is a practice. It's something that you do. And it tends to follow a consistent pattern. Joy is the action of recounting the powerful and faithful deeds of God in the past, retelling those stories, remembering all the blessings that God has lavished upon you before, reminiscing wildly about God's love, and then looking forward in faith to the fulfillment of God's work in the future, looking forward to the time when God will move in your life once again, when he will bring blessings to bear on you once again, when he will put all things to right at the end of time. Moses and the people retold the story of parting the Red Sea, and they looked forward to inheriting the promised land, and that was how they practiced joy. The Israelites in exile remembered God's love towards them and provisions for them in the past, and they looked forward to the restoration in the future, and that was joy. Paul reminded the Philippians of the good work that God had begun in their midst in the past, and he claimed in confidence the completion of that good work in the future. Joy. Friends, you cannot and you will not be able to feel joy all the time, whenever you want it. That is a lie told in order to get a hold of your money and your attention. You are free, however, to try and practice joy at all times and in all places and in all circumstances. And we have a template for how to do it. Christians practice joy by resting their faith, their confidences on the good and gracious deeds that God has done in the past, and then by looking forward to the fulfillment of God's promises in the future to the love that is yet in store for us. This is a great paradigm because how often in difficult times do we forget the blessings that we have experienced in the past? That's all the time, all the time. It's one of the devil's go-to tricks and his most insidious is to start making us think in a very difficult period that we've actually, you know, never been fully satisfied. We've actually never been happy or we've actually never felt God's presence beside us. Things have always been this bad and it's only now that we're seeing things clearly. Lies. Those are lies. Furthermore, how often in difficult times do we forget that this too shall pass? That whatever suffering, anxiety we feel is temporary, it's only for a season because God is working for the redemption and even the resurrection of all things and for the good of all of his children whom he loves. All too often, we forget that all too often. And the answer is to practice joy, to actively remember God's work in history and in our lives and to claim his promises for our future. Sometimes, sometimes this is actually just like a straight up this or that choice that we are faced with. In a moment of disappointment, sadness, pain, anxiety, or apathy, what are we going to do? Are we going to put stock in our culture's promise? You can feel joy all the time. And then just disappear for an afternoon or a day or a week into online news or to Facebook or something and just numb whatever it is that we happen to be feeling? Or will we remember that that promise is a lie built upon either a misunderstanding or a manipulation of what true joy really is? And instead, in our moments of struggle or pain, will we try to practice joy? This might look like spending an afternoon praying through a list of friends, thanking God for the ways that he has protected them in the past and will protect them in the future, rather than spending the afternoon watching Fox News or CNN. This might look like waking up in the morning to a daily scripture reading, filling our brain space, our conscious mind space, our attention span with stories of God's mighty deeds and promises of his future actions rather than waking up to our phone screens. This might look like spending the Christmas season fully committing to the celebration and the observance of Advent, the whole point of which, remember, 
is to celebrate and to remember the birth of Jesus 2,000 years ago and to anticipate his second coming in the future. We might celebrate and observe Advent rather than spending the Christmas season consumed with gift-giving and planning parties and decorating trees. This is so important. It's so worth the effort. Because with this invitation to practice joy comes another promise. It's a different promise, a true promise. It does not promise a feeling. Because although God created dopamine, and dopamine is a good good creation of God, God does not promise us eternally sunny moods and never-ending good times. He does, however, offer us something so, so much greater. According to the biblical testimony, practicing joy can lead to an inner strength and resilience and faith that defies belief. It can lead to the kind of deeply rooted joy that allowed the the people that Moses led out of Egypt to have an ecstatic worshiping God party in the middle of the desert, miles and miles and decades and decades away from the promised land, when they didn't know when their next sip of water or swallow of food would come from. It can lead to the kind of deep-rooted joy that allowed the exiled Israelites to maintain a, a strident and fervent hope in Yahweh, despite the fact that everything and everyone around them in the land of Babylon told them that their God had abandoned them. It can lead to the kind of joy that Paul that lets Paul write letters of encouragement and hope from within a Roman prison cell awaiting execution. The world's idea of joy, the world's concept of joy, left me for dead after about 45 minutes in a Firestone waiting room. God's idea of joy, his concept, his practice of joy, will stay beside you in the darkest valleys of life. The first verse of Joy to the World is about the incarnation of God and the baby Jesus. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. The final verse jumps ahead thousands of years into the future, maybe millions of years, who knows, to the day when Christ has returned and sits upon his rightful throne. He rules the world with truth and grace from the past to the future. And so after this video or this podcast has concluded and you find some version of joy to the world to sing out, to belt out, it might put you into a good mood. You very well could receive a solid dopamine hit. It might make you happy, and I hope it does. There is nothing wrong with feeling happy. But when you are singing along with the song, don't mistake that feeling, that mood that the song puts you in. Don't mistake that for joy. No, we, you, are about to practice joy by remembering God's past deeds and looking forward to the fulfillment of his promises. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you for listening to another episode of the End of Words podcast brought to you by Grifton United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to our podcast, sharing the episode with a friend, or making plans to visit us on a Sunday morning at 11 a.m. in our sanctuary on McRae Street. We would love to have the opportunity to greet you in person. If you have any feedback, comments, or questions, you can email me at cpunt at nccumc.org. God bless.